Ja, dann war er nicht die, dann war er das Eintopf auf die Trasche. Oh, yes, okay, okay. Ich habe noch einen Ort noch. Sag, ich kann nicht wieder probieren. Ich kann nicht mehr auf meine Wette von Opus. Ich kann mal. Okay. Und wo ist mein Klang? Wo ist mein
Right. Um, Susanna, I just want to double check with you. Are you, uh, can you hear us? Are you audible? Yes. yes. Have, you got you. A, have you also got a camera there that, uh, that I've works? I've got there my camera as well. Okay. Hi. Okay. Excellent. Welcome. Welcome again. And, and thank you for uh, agreeing to participate in this, uh, in this uh, series. Right, uh, so uh, um, you must give me indication, Lasha, when uh, when we can go ahead. Um, Prof, we can, it's 12.30, so um, you're welcome to start, unless you want to wait just a minute or so for more of the delegates to join. I think maybe if you just... Uh, uh, wait another minute or so maybe in the beginning i'm going to ask the uh, uh, our colleagues just to switch off their cameras and when i when i introduce uh, each of you each one of you then maybe you can just switch it on at that point and then when you start uh, with your with with the individual presentations then the other cameras should be all off uh, and then there's only focusing on that individual that do that do the uh, do their remarks okay thank you okay. um I think let's let's wait another minute or so. It's about ninety people that have uh, joined. <clears throat> I think we can probably start, uh, um, Lasha. You must just indicate to me when I can go ahead. We can start, Prof. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Lasha. Well, good afternoon uh, to everyone that's attending this uh, Thought Leadership webinar series. Um, this is the what we call the 2021 University of the Free State Thought Leadership Webinar Series, and welcome to you all. And I'm glad that you could uh, that you could be part uh, of this discussion this afternoon. Um, the discussion this afternoon um, is going to be focusing on the South African politics and the local government elections, a scene setter for a capable state. And uh, I will introduce the panelists a little bit later. But just a little bit of background on the Thought Leadership webinar. Um, as, a, as a university and as part of the uh, public higher education system in South Africa, it's one of our responsibilities uh, to contribute to public discourse. Uh, um, and I believe that that's important where we discuss topical issues uh, of the day. Uh, to provide input from a university perspective, but also to get some of the thought leaderships and thought leaders in, uh, um, in, in part of the South African community, and for that matter, also the international community. This is going to be our third uh, thought leadership series for this year. Uh, we started earlier this year with the international panel uh, that, that complement and supplements uh, uh, some of the speakers from the University of the Free State, where we're focusing on reimagining universities for student success. A few months ago, we have we had a, a, a webinar series as part of the Thought Leadership Series, focusing on uh, 
on on corruption, uh, primarily corruption in in the state uh, and the organs of state, but also corruption in the private sector, and it was also quite a vibrant uh, discussion. Um, and as I indicated today, the focus really is going to be uh, on local government, and we are hosting this webinar. Uh, as part of the thought leadership series, uh, but also as part of the Freistart Literature Festival's online initiative called Freisprach Digital. Um, and, uh, and this is a, a webinar series that's always attended uh, very well uh, and good questions that, that, that come from the audience, which uh, indicate that it's a very participative audience that we normally attract. But to start off, uh, you know, if we talk about local government, I would probably say that local government is at the coalface of service delivery uh, um, to South Africans. Local government has, been, has often been the target of protest due to poor service delivery. And we have seen uh, protest action uh, um, every year uh, across all parts of South Africa uh, at local government level, uh, really challenging the service delivery uh, competency and the service delivery continuation from these structures to South Africans. Municipalities are failing across the country, unable to provide basic services, unable to account for funds often that they are in charge or recklessly spending uh, uh, on frivolous items. And, and I think recently uh, we have seen uh, the municipal audit outcomes uh, by the Auditor General uh, which reported about 26 billion in irregular expenditure across local government. Now, this either suggests that local government is not capable of carrying out technical tasks or other tasks, or their constituents are not being heard by the representatives that they uh, have elected. As we head towards the local government elections, and I hope, and that will be one of the discussion questions uh, uh, that we will entertain later on, is whether the local government elections will take place, should take place. South Africans must, must think hard about which parties, organizations, or individuals we mark uh, our cross next to, because that's important, because those choices will have a direct impact on our lives for the next five years. So this is a critical component of governance uh, within the South African structure and, uh, and, and uh, South African political structure. And this afternoon, we've got a, 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 um, an esteemed panel that uh, will hopefully uh, give their perspectives, uh, but also will entertain some, uh, some critical questions that I think uh, would also come from the audience in relation to local government. Um, uh, the, uh, the first, uh, and I'm going to introduce the panelists to you now. Uh, the first panelist I want to introduce is Mr. Ibram Fakir. Uh, um, and um, I'm going to ask Mr. Fakir just to switch on his camera. Uh, Mr. Fakir is currently Director of Programs at the Orwell Socioeconomic Research Institute, uh, also known as ASRI. He was awarded the 2014 Ruth First Fellowship at the University of the Witwatersrand and was a part-time lecturer in the Wit School of Governance in 2018. Until October 2016, he was head of the political parties in parliamentary program 
in the Electoral Institute, where he edited and published the election update focusing on the analysis of South African elections. So welcome, uh, um, Mr. Fakir, and we're looking forward to your contribution. Our second panelist uh, is Professor Susan Boysen. Uh, now, Susan is a political scientist. Um, she's an author and, and an analyst of South African politics. She's also director of research at the Mapungupwe Institute uh, for Strategic Reflection, MISTRA, uh, Emeritus Professor at the University of the Witwatersrand, and visiting professor uh, at the Wits School of Governance. Uh, professor Boyson's third book in a Wits University Press trilogy of research-driven books on the African National Congress of South Africa, Precarious Power, uh, Compliance and Discontent under Ramaphosa's ANC was published in March 2021. She also edited a range of books on South Africa and South African politics. Uh, a latest edited volume for the Mapungupe Institute uh, is Marriages of Inconvenience, Coalition Politics in South Africa. Uh, previous edited books are Feast Must Fall. Um, we're not going to talk about that today, uh, uh, Susan. Uh, Revolt, Decolonization and Governance in South Africa, and also Local Elections in South Africa, People, Parties and Politics. Uh, and she also co-edited Democracy and Elections in Southern Africa uh, with Dennis Kadima. So, uh, um, Susan, also welcome and thank you for your willingness to participate in this panel. And our, um, our final panelist is Professor Setulehu Matabesi, also known as Professor Zaki Matabesi. Uh, now, he's one of our own. Uh, he's an associate professor and academic head at the Department of sociology at the University of the Free State. Uh, Professor Matabesi's primary research interest is social movements, community development and mining company community relations. Uh, he's particularly interested in understanding the role of trust in community protests at municipal level and the conflict between uh, mining companies and mining communities in South Africa. His recent publications include two monographs, social licensing and mining in South Africa, uh, and then also civil strife against local governance, uh, dynamics of community protest in South Africa. So we've got three speakers uh, um, that will really hopefully entertain us with, 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 with good insights. They, uh, I just would like to say up front that um, our fourth speaker, Dr. Feriel Hafaji, uh, um, have, uh, um, there, was, there was an emergency and she couldn't uh, get out of that. So she's not going to be part of this panel. Uh, she has tabled her apologies. She would have liked to have been here, uh, but, uh, but maybe at, at, at some other opportunity, we will uh, invite uh, Dr. Hafaji back uh, to, uh, to, uh, to a conversation, but uh, I'm looking forward at least to, uh, to get some input from our three panelists. I would like also for the audience, there, there is a chat box uh, and Q&A. Uh, please provide some questions because I would like to pick up some of those questions uh, uh, during question time. So uh, I will remind you again during the course of, 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 the, uh, of the presentations by the individual panelists. So I'm gonna start off uh, by inviting uh, Mr. Ibram Fakir uh, to, to give his introductory remarks, uh, giving about 10 or so minutes. Uh, and then from there, we will move to uh, Professor Susan Boyson and then 
to uh, uh, Professor uh, Zaki Matabesi. So, Mr. Ibrahim Fakir, over to you. I think if you can just unmute yourself. Thank you. There we go. Thank, Thank you very you. much, Prof. Um, and I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, I would have much preferred to have been in Bloemfontein, but, uh, you know, circumstances being as they are, I'm happy to do this from Joburg as well. So thanks very much for the invitation. Uh, you'll notice also that I'm the only non-professor or non-doctor on the panel, but I hope that uh, I'll be able to hold uh, myself with my esteemed colleagues. And so I'm going to start off by making... Uh, a couple of remarks before I talk about our theme of a capable state in terms of a scene setter for the upcoming local government elections. And the first point I want to make is that we can't talk about a capable state, nor can we talk about effective government or governance for that matter, if we don't talk about politics, because governance and government is a post-political fact. Uh, it cannot exist a priori, they don't exist a priori, unless of course in very authoritarian systems in which power is seized and so on. And so axiomatically then, it would mean that if politics precedes and, and pre-exist the formation of government or type of politics must pre-exist it, then the type of politics prevalent in a society will in large part determine the nature and character of government and governance after. Now, it is possible, of course, to have perhaps bad politics, but decent government. Uh, it's rare, but it is theoretically possible. But that is premised on the fact that even if you have bad politics, as you might have had in the US or in the UK for some time, if you have robust institutions and robust processes and procedures by which decisions are made and resources are allocated, then the society can withstand a period of bad politics. But in our, in our society, given how fragile we are, and that we're only 20 years, literally, if you think about the local government transition, we're only 20 years into that transition. Our institutions are not robust enough. Our processes are not so robust enough. And therefore, they've both been available for malevolent state capture. That is state capture for corruption. And I always like to add the rider malevolent or bad state capture or corrupt state capture because democracy, to a certain extent, facilitates some degrees of state capture. Everything, of course, depends on why a state is captured, for what purpose, um, and, and for what reason. And of course, in our, in our context, I would argue that it's been captured for malevolent purposes, for corrupt purposes, for bad ends, for unethical ends. Now, returning to the point that I've been making about the fact that politics pre-exist government, government and governance is a post-political fact, and that it is possible to have some kind of bad politics for a period which can be withstood if you have strong institutions. Now, let's just look at our institutions. And because we're talking about a capable state, I want to just outline five markers of a capable state. The first is that a capable state would have strong regulatory ability, the ability to make laws, the ability to make policies which are prudent, which are appropriate, which fit the circumstances of the society and so on. The second would be the technical capacity, which is the engineering works required, the ability to technically maintain and build infrastructure uh, and do the kind of necessary technical 
activities which are required to make a society functional and to facilitate economic and social activity and so on. So that's the second. The third is administrative capacity, the ability to execute, the ability to implement strong oversight ability, serious ways of extracting accountability and so on. So that's the third, the administrative. Fourth would be the extractive ability. That is the ability to raise taxes, revenues, rates, and so on, so that you can fund the kind of things which need to happen at the level of local government. And then lastly is the coercive ability, right? The ability to ensure that there is compliance with rules. And that, of course, depends on two things, the predictability with which the rules are enforced and the consistency with which they're enforced. And I would argue that if you take each one of these five measures, you will find that local government and government in general has been lacking. So if you have bad and malevolent politics, you have bad ethics in society, and the quotient of public morality in general is low, even outside of government, then the ability for these five functional areas of capability in the state suddenly start to wither away and you have a weak state. So, you know, we've got bad politics and because we've got bad politics, our institutions are easily manipulatable, are easily processes are easily undermined and people are put in those positions because they can be easily manipulated. And because of that, you have poor accountability lacks oversight and institutional malfunction and dysfunction. Now, it bears, it bears it necessary to suggest also that I think South Africa in the local government area is going through both transformation fatigue and transition fatigue. Because just think a couple of years back, you had a intervention, policy intervention called Project Consolidate which tried to recover and rehabilitate malfunctioning municipalities. And, and now we have a new buzzword doing the rounds called the district development model. Now, no matter how many kind of technical interventions you try to think up to make interventions, if the ability and the capability is not there on the one hand, and on the other hand, the political wherewithal and the desire to actually see this through in ethical and, and compliant ways, if those two are missing from the equation, then it's unlikely that you will have either transformation or transition from a process of maladministration and malfeasance to actually proper and capable government. So, and society in general is suffering from fatigue of both transition and, trans and transformation. Part of this is a function of, of what's going on in local government itself, and that you have what I would argue a two-tier system. And the two-tier system refers not just to the metropolitan municipalities vis-a-vis -vis district and, and other urban and rural municipalities, but that in each municipality, in each local level of the state, you have a cadership of public representatives who on the PR system, on the PR elected representatives are more powerful than the ward representatives, because we know we've got a dual system existing at local government level, and the PR councils are much more manipulatable by their political parties, and therefore they exercise much more power. Whereas in contradistinction, the ward councillors ought to be more powerful uh, because they are the ones who are at local government. And as you say, Prof. Peterson, the closest level of government, which should be providing the kind of link between communities and government, and that has been missing. 
So this dysfunction then starts to filter through the system of accountability, the system of oversight. And because the oversight is lacking, those people who are meant, the officials, the bureaucrats, the technocrats who are meant to actually do the coalface delivery, whether it be communications, whether it be hard infrastructure, whether it be maintenance, it simply falls down because the level of oversight and supervision is not there. Now, flowing from that lack of accountability and lack of oversight, we also have to necessarily say that there is something wrong in the policy mix. And this can be traceable back to the days of, of, of President Thabo Mbeki. Because remember at that time, the drive nationally was towards reducing the budget deficit and driving towards a budget surplus. Now in macroeconomic terms, that would be a prudent decision, but it should not and ought not to come at the cost of the actual work which needs to be done at local government. Now, at local government, what started to happen is that many of the municipalities cash-strapped started ring-fencing a whole range of revenues, whether it were coming from the national treasury as the, as the equitable, from the equitable share formula or otherwise, we're using that for basic routine running of the municipalities in terms of staffing, in terms of salaries, and very little in terms of, of ma ma infrastructure maintenance, infrastructure expansion, and infrastructure repair, which then started having a creaking effect on the kind of services which continue to be delivered. And therefore, not only are there problems in financial accounting and reporting and compliance, but also serious problems with the ability to actually deliver the services which local governments have to do. So austerity, while is a good thing in certain macroeconomic areas, was certainly debilitating at the local government level firstly, and secondly, the austerity was applied in all of the wrong policy areas, rather than the areas in which austerity ought to have been applied. That is salaries, benefits, uh, and the frills, which usually go with people in government. So the idea of austerity perhaps is a good one, but it didn't work in local government. So overall, we can add to the compounding of an inappropriate policy mix with the fact that you've got problems, systemic problems in the oversight, accountability and responsiveness matrix down to the fact that the overall architecture, while it might be sound in concept, is poor in operation and compounded to that is, and people would sometimes make the argument of incapacity at local government level. And I'm not sure that incapacity is always a big issue. What I think is an issue is the laxity, a poor attitude to work and a real sense of everyone will do as they please, whether they are an official, or whether they are an elected public representative, a politician. And so the one takes license from the other. And because there's a symbiotic relationship between the administrative and political class, they feed off each other's laxity and feed off each other's desire for non-compliance. So local government then, in terms of the, its effects, is giving rise to a much more predatory state. And the predatory state is now not simply operational at the national level, but is being keenly felt, most keenly felt rather, at the local level. And so with the predatory state, what happens is that communities start into retreating into, into their own primordial identity formations, which is giving rise to problems 
not just in social cohesion, which I don't, which I don't buy into, by the way, but in the real sense of social solidarity, which should exist, particularly in difficult times that we have now. And so the retreat into these primordial identities, giving rise to more populism, but also ideas of well, we'll cater for our own communities in the old apartheid idea of separate development. And I think that's a very debilitating consequence uh, of what's been happening so far. Uh, thank you very much. I think my 10 minutes are up. Yeah, okay. Now, thank you very much, uh, uh, Ibrahim. And, and I think it's a, it's a, very, good, a very good way of, of easing into, the, uh, into this session. Uh, and you don't have to be worried about the titles. Uh, you, you've done fantastically well. Uh, our next uh, panelist is uh, Professor Susan Boysens. And Susan, over to you. Thank, thank you very much, Professor Peterson. And thank you, Ibrahim, for setting out a very nice foundation. Thank you. So I want to address here three broad concepts. I think viability of local government in South Africa, coalition politics and how that plays into it, party politics coming into, into the mix all around, and turnaround strategies that the ANC and its governments have been attempting, and how this all interfaces also with the electoral system and local government. So, and, and I'll show how these concepts all use and help deliver the very precarious system of local government and practices of local government that we have in South Africa. We'll ask a question as to whether elections can really help, necessary as they are. I'm not abandoning elections, but one sometimes wonders if one sees the development, some of which we've already heard. Um, when we see all these developments, what is the point of local government elections? And one becomes aware of how much needs to change in order to get local government elections to be really meaningful. And we have already heard quite a few other problems and the problems with local government, are, of course, are so well known, but it's worth just recapping on a few of the statistics. And we, we've heard these from the Minister of Finance, from the President, from the Auditor General. A few of these things are about 63% of South Africa's 257 municipalities are in financial distress, almost two thirds. About 40% of them are making their municipal living on unfunded budgets. Think of that. Only about 27 of the, of the 257 municipalities, roughly, let's say 10% of them, have been managing to get clean audits. It is difficult to achieve a clean audit, but still, it is very, very low. And we have also heard from the president words that he, in which he acknowledged specifically that municipal governance in provinces like the Free State, like the Northwest, have collapsed. And these are by financial measures and by service delivery measures. That is very disconcerting. There's a lot of consensus on what the problems are in local government. There has been this consensus and knowledge for a very long time, but they are, and Ibrahim has also mentioned a few of them, in a le at level of skills extensive disregard 
for rules, procedures of procurement, for example, of collecting revenue. So often that simply does not take place. Creditors are not paid. And very important is that about 46% of those central government transfers on grants and this equitable share that goes to local governments, about 40% of that, 46% of that is known to be channeled into salaries for officials and for councillors, rather than being spent on those essential services that are to take place in municipalities. These problems are also recognised by the department responsible for local government, corporate governance and traditional affairs, very well known. They talk commonly about the problems of financial management, about administrative capacities and skills that are simply not present, of corruption that interferes in that process. I've mentioned service delivery, failures of civil service delivery, that is a widespread problem. And very interesting, because this is part of my central argument, of course, and that is the role of politics. Cogta recognizes very specifically and in detail the problems that there are with governments and politics, governance and politics in local government. They mention infighting, instability, poor oversight, interference, and those are very serious problems when it comes to local government. There have not been a paucity of attempts to, or publicized attempts, that have often not go deep enough and far enough by any stretch of the imagination. But we can think of the big fanfare back in 2009, when the first big local government turnaround strategy was launched. <laughs> About 12 years later, that has approximately fizzled out, except that the turnaround strategy is now known to be a permanent strategy, not anything for that has delivered concrete results and is even envisaged to be anywhere close to delivering those results. But yet that has not been abandoned, it is still there without much effect. And then one must obviously ask this question, this new big thing, this district development model, whether that is something that can actually help rescue local government in South Africa. It is very interesting how the district development model, it found its origins around 2019 when President Ronald Coulter first mentioned that in his budget speech. And in the times of COVID, there have been many plans, many PowerPoint presentations that have seen the light around that, but it interfaces with local government in very interesting manners. It is not entirely unconstitutional, and Cogta very definitely specifies the fact that it is constitutional in terms of section 154.1 and um, 41 H-26 of the Constitution, that part of the Constitution that places uh, an obligation on national and provincial governments to help local governments do their functions of service delivery, to help them perform and deliver on the needs of the citizens. 
And yet it, it really forms a total parallel line of government in South Africa. It is not totally implemented yet. There are a few pilot studies, Bartaburg, Etiquini, Oliver Tambo District Municipality, where there's are unfolding a few other places and where it is tentatively being tested and municipalities have been developing their profiles all around in order to prepare the ground for this. It is not an elected government, even if it interfaces in some respects with district municipalities and, and, the, and the metro municipalities in South Africa. There are some overlaps there, but this is not an elected body, ob obviously not. And yet it will be subsuming many of those functions, infrastructure development, service delivery, that local governments are simply not managing. What for me is particularly interesting about this is that it, it, it resonates with other forms of government that is being practiced by the South African and ANC government. When a certain level, where a certain set of institutions, processes do not work, there's always another level or layer to be added to that. And for, I see that happening in, in the district development model and how it is being led to intersect with local government and help take over, if one gives the benefit of the doubt here, help take over some of those functions there. But it sees planning happening jointly between, for example, cluster structures between the national, provincial and local governments planning, budgeting, implementation, oversight, those big typical government functions that is being envisaged to take place in a district development model for which we shall not be voting and which, which is a bureaucratic function. We see references here and there when explanations of the system are being offered, how district mayors, for example, would be some of the principles or advocates of the system and come into the mix, it is not clearly specified how it will be have interfacing with elected government at any level. And this, of course, raises big questions about the viability of local government. And it raises the question of whether national government has given up the hope of ever turning around local government. We know from Auditors General's reports that the state of municipalities is going backward, numbers who are managing credible audits backward rather than forward. Some sanctions that have been introduced there are so far not finding traction. So is there any prospect for local government being turned around? And that may bring us, Professor Peterson, to the question of elections. Elections are supposed to bring better, to bring more accountable governments into place. At local government level, that so far has not really happened. We've seen minor changes, more coalition governments that have been coming into power, at least in the metro cities, overall in national numbers, South Africa for the last few elections have been in a region of around 30 or so local, local municipalities and metro municipalities that have been under coalition governments. 
that elections are not necessarily the answer. I, I do not say we can do without elections, but at local government elections, also at other levels, there have not been much progress on, on that front. And that, of course, raises a big question as to whether this electoral model of the 50-50 proportional and ward, which there are suggestions that may be emulated, oh, that's greatly admired by the task teams that are looking at that and will be reporting in the third week of next month, as to whether it is possible to, or advisable to use that electoral system to, of the local level where it has been guarding a very a highly failed local government system, whether that electoral system is actually an answer to South Africa's national issues. Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you very much, Professor Boyson. And then uh, once again, you know, I think that uh, your, 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 your input uh, is definitely opened up a lot of other questions. And I've seen some of the questions that came through uh, through our uh, Q&A. Uh, and, and certainly those questions I will uh, uh, um, uh, extend to our panel. But again, thank you very much, uh, Professor Boyson, for now. Um, our third speaker is, uh, um, as I indicated, uh, Professor Matabesi. And um, Zaki, over to you. Uh, thank you for the introduction, uh, Prof. Peterson. May I also take this opportunity to thank everyone who played a role in organizing this webinar. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, it's good to have you here this afternoon. And I've got a very difficult task, and it's a task of having to connect uh, some dots to the puzzle posed by the central team of today's webinar, which is South African politics, local government elections, and a capable state. Now, I strongly believe that my fellow panelists have already eloquently responded to uh, this question, but then I will try to or actually make an attempt to connect the dots by responding to three central questions. Firstly, we have seen a significant increase in service delivery protests during election years. And the question that I'm posing is what is the significance of these protests for the outcomes of government elections or attempts to build a capable government? And secondly, also, I think most of us already know the causes of service delivery protests, which I actually uh, call or define as community protests, uh, except what is already known. And I use the notion of tra transactional activism uh, to try and debunk this whole notion of the impact of community protests on the outcome of local government elections. Oh, and huge impact on the significance of local government in delivering services to the citizens. And I've also heard that Prof. Boisenev indicated that she uh, did focus on the coalitions at local government, but I also briefly want to uh, focus on uh, perhaps what is the role of independent uh, candidates and a trend that we have seen happening at local government, 
uh, the emergence of civic uh, groupings or the so-called uh, local uh, groups that deliver services on behalf of municipalities? Does that have an impact on municipalities uh, in rendering services? Now, I just as a point of departure, I would like to use a quote from Fabiano, Macaro and colleagues, and I quote, where institutions are strong, actors are more likely to participate in the political protest through institutionalized arenas, while where they are weak, protest and other unconventional means of participation becomes more appealing. And if I have to summarize what the previous speakers have already addressed, I will say to a large extent, they focus on the more structural aspects that relate to our local government. And perhaps the question remains, how does our African citizens respond to some of these challenges? And we know for a fact that uh, protest uh, has been one means that have been used by South African citizens. Now, if we look, and by the way, uh, just remember that since the democratic dispensation, the first protest or so-called service delivery protest emerged or erupted in a deep slot and harassment in 20, uh, 2004. And over the past 16 years, uh, if you look at the incidence of service delivery, according to the provinces, you will see that Gauteng, the Eastern Cape and KwaZulu-Natal, and to a lesser extent, the Western Cape has been the highest, uh, it actually had the highest incidences of service delivery protests over the past uh, 16 years. But quite interesting, uh, at the end of May, the free state has overtaken both the Eastern Cape and the Western Cape. Now, this once again uh, poses the question, why do citizens who vote in uh, local representatives actually go to the street against the very same representatives? And my notion take on this is that the connection between party affiliation and social movements in South Africa, it's quite blurred. Now, partisan protesters are able to navigate successfully between the party and, and the so-called concerned resident groups. And, but this fine South Africa, we haven't seen any significant uh, correlation between protest and election uh, uh, results, except for what we have seen in 2016, where especially what happened in Gauteng uh, Pretoria and Johannesburg, and to a certain extent, uh, less extent, Port Elizabeth, where in Pretoria, the residents were unhappy over the mayoral candidates, and that led to the worst electoral performance of the African National Congress since uh, the elections of 1994 or the 2006 local government elections. And then this brings me to the second question that I've posed to myself, is the question of if communities are using protests as a means to engage 
uh, with the local government. The question remains, but what continues to fuel this protest? And I am not naive and I don't want for once want to say I've got all the answers, but one explanation for this could be what I call transactional activism. And transactional activism, in other ways, other people will use it as cooptation. But it is where in most of the 40, in almost all the 40 case studies in South Africa that I've been involved in that relates to service delivery protest, is where you can actually find traces of evidence where the local representative have tried to offer incentive to the core leaders of the protest. And here I speak about Mirafo, I speak about Kuruman, I speak about Burgers Fort in Limpopo, I speak about the so-called Tatani case, Fixburg, I speak about Hrabo, and closer to home, I speak about Jagas Fontaine. Now, the moment if you try to mute a protest by offering short-term or incentive uh, to core leaders of the protest, I strongly believe that these are short-term measures. And it is also some kind of civic demobilization. Now, you, this simply means that instead of dealing with the fundamental concerns of the residents, the leaders are trying to mute uh, the concerns. And that is why we find a situation in South Africa where there is a vicious cycle of protest because the fundamental issues or the fundamental concerns of the community has not been uh, addressed. And in situations like this, it really becomes a harder to building uh, credibility because for me, the issue is it's all about trust. If communities have trust in their local representatives, if communities have trust in uh, their local institutions, then I don't think all these disruptive or violent service delivery protests will be the norm. And it's actually a huge disconnect between the elite and grassroots act, uh, actors, which is, a, which is problematic at various levels. And that's why if you've got a situation like that, communities will order, uh, find other ways to try and engage with, with the state. Now, trying to respond to the last question uh, that I've posed to myself, it's actually the whole issue that it leads to the institutionalization of a particular repertoire of collective action. And the question that we need to pose at this juncture is that how is it possible that you've got civic groupings who are taking on municipalities? What have happened to our opposition uh, political parties, uh, because I think they've got a, vibe, a strong role, a, a role that I need to play uh, at local government. And that's why if you look at areas such as Hetleng River, which I strongly believe that will be quite decisive, uh, where for the very first time in South Africa, you had a community which have launched a legal challenge against its own municipality where it wants to deliver uh, services on behalf of the municipality. We've seen uh, 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 of experience some of these things happening in areas such as Sunnyshoff, but in this instance, 
some of these community groupings or the so-called rate payer associations in South Africa, what they normally do is that they will perhaps assist the municipality in uh, paying for uh, or, or delivering certain services. But this is for the very first time where we've got a situation where uh, a community wants to deliver services on behalf of a municipality. Now, once again, the mainstream uh, positioning of grassroots organizations also poses the question whether they will be able to disrupt uh, the current uh, structure or nature of uh, a local government. And yet we haven't seen uh, any evidence of that uh, happening in, in, in South Africa. But perhaps also one question that we have to ask uh, at this stage is the role of independent uh, candidates. Have they been able uh, to challenge or at least have a significant impact um, on, at local government level? And to a certain extent, if you look at some ANC members voting with the opposition, and, and here I refer to Solplachi in, in Kimberley, the OR Tambo municipality in the Eastern Cape, and once again, closer to home, the so-called uh, MAP-16, uh, Malutu Apofu, uh, uh, 16 uh, councillors who have actually taken a decision to vote against their own organization. The question is, how significant has this been uh, uh, for local government? And that has not been uh, the case. Now, in conclusion, uh, uh, and that's why if you look at the provincial secretary of the ANC summed this up and indicated that this is the worst reactionary act that we have ever seen, wherein councillors who are deployed by the movement connive with the opposition parties to oust a comrade deployed by the ANC. And in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, if you can just pause and think about this. Now, if we agree that problems in local government that lead to poor performance are caused by political and not administrative leadership, and if we agree that the local government system is not geared for power share, and if we agree that challenges of political leadership can partly be ascribed to the dominance of internal party politics, particularly the immense power vested in the office of the mayors, where sometimes there's a complete disregard for, uh, for council resolution, then I believe the 2021 local government elections will not effect the changes and produce a strong local government capable of fulfilling its constitutional mandate. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Matabesi, and um, a lot of food for thought there. And we will will come back to unpack some of those a little bit a little bit later. Um, so, so I, I see there's a lot of questions coming through. So, yeah, uh, I would uh, ask the audience to keep that questions coming through, and I will pick them up. Uh, probably not so much as individual questions. There might be one or two, but as themes that that's coming through the Q and A, um, and. And Ibrahim, I would like to to start off with you. Uh, um, and 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 if you if you if you look at the um, the topic, 
of our um, of, of 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 this panel um, is really about local government elections and a scene setter for a capable state. And and I, I want probably just perhaps in a in, in from your perspective, uh, two questions. Um, the one is related to how 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 would you define a capable state realistically in the context of of of, of South Africa? Um, uh, you know, I just want to make sure that we as South Africans uh, do understand what expectation there would be from a capable state in the context of local government. And then secondly, uh, um, uh, Susan have, have referred to earlier about, you know, whether the elections takes place or not. Uh, um, I, I just wanted to get your view. Uh, would you, uh, you know, if we, if we assume that COVID-19 is not the key driver to stop the, uh, the elections, uh, if that is under control, uh, what would be your take on whether elections should go ahead or not? Uh, um, yeah, if you could maybe respond to those two. Uh, thanks, Prof. Um, two, ins <clears throat> two encyclopedic questions. Um, let me see how best I can answer them. On, <laughs> I mean, look, on, on the question of, <clears throat> of a capable state, I have one kind of basic aphorism that I often use in response to this kind of question. And for me, that is back to basics. It literally is a question of back to basics because, look, you know, when I outline the five areas of state capacity, right, I'm not, I'm not trying to echo Francis Fukuyama or, or those kind of theorists who've come up with these things. And, and, and of course, they, they, you know, you can measure, say, a country like Germany or Sweden or any of the Nordic countries, and you take those five measures, the regulatory ability, technical, administrative, coercive, um, extractive, they can tick all those boxes. Now, I'm not blind to the fact that we come from a specific history, that our history shaped not just the spatial relations and the spatial nature of some of the places, uh, also not blind to the fact that we've incorporated into what we call South Africa proper, what used to be the Bantu starts with very low levels of actual economic activity, a low rate of base, uh, of low base of, of rates and revenue, low productivity, and so on, right? So I'm not blind to the context and saying I'm applying these standards, but when I say back to basics and I outline those five areas, I mean, I would like to see a state <clears throat> or at least a local government trying to carry out its basic functions. If a reservoir breaks, I expect someone to go and fix the valves and the pumps. Uh, you know, when there's a pothole, I expect that it gets fixed. When verges have to be cleared, I, su I suspect that needs to happen. If I call the local government office to query a, 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 a rate statement and I want a credit on, a, uh, on, on, on one account and a debit on another account, I expect the person to actually be responsive and not tell me, Ish, bro, it's three o'clock, I'm tired, you know. So that, that's the, I'm looking at a back to basic, simple, Weberian idea of you must do what you have to do in, in a very discreet, well-defined, functional way. Now, when we talk about this, we can't say that in South Africa, these rules don't exist or the Weberian idea of a state doesn't exist. I think it does. But because of the, of the question of laxity, poor supervision, 
from 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 officials internal to the administration and then from the political administrative interface poor oversight that's breaking down even the basic things are not happening and auditor general's reports as prof uh, boyson is pointing out is not just about financial irregularities they're also pointing out increasingly to the fact that basic routine functions in administration in technical areas are simply not being carried out if you read um professor Mkabisin Lechana's book on on the ANC in power in Port Elizabeth you know so it's actually a focus on the ANC but the focus on PE as a metro shows the level of impunity in which a thriving community center which was built post-apartheid took a loan from the development corporation the loan disappeared and three years after the loan the community center itself, a thriving community center providing outreach, providing social mobility for young African black children simply disappeared. So the money disappeared, the infrastructure disappeared. Okay. I'm okay. saying basic, a basic measure of capability in my, in my view is none of the higher order things. Can we simply do the basics that people have to do for the jobs they've been hired to do? And, and I think if we can simply start there, we might go a long way. On your second question, Prof, um, you know, I, I've argued and it's, it's, it's published that I don't think the local government election should go ahead this year. Uh, and it's not just because, well, partly it's largely because of the pandemic, but I don't think that we are in any state of readiness or preparedness to do this. I know some people say that it would be constitutionally irregular. I'm not convinced that it is. I think the State of Disaster Act and going to invoke this internationally accepted practice in jurisprudence of, of a dictum of necessity, where the IEC, together with the retired Deputy Chief Justice Mosaneke and his investigative panel, along with Parliament, goes to the Constitutional Court and asks to invoke this dictum of necessity to extend the term of office, irregular as it may sound, by another six to eight months, I think, because look, there's things which are unknown about the pandemic and the etiology of the disease. What we do know, and there are things which are unknowable. What we do know is that we don't yet have a credible vaccine rollout. So it's not gonna happen. And you can think of any number of interventions, increase the number of polling stations, streamline voters, have open air voting stations, maybe even have the election over two days, right? Those are mitigating with those are mitigating activities you can put in to ensure safety, but they come with their own drawbacks. First is that it becomes horribly more expensive. Secondly, in a volatile political climate like ours, particularly where you've got fractious parties who are looking to blame someone for something, can you imagine if you spread the election over two days or you have multiple more voting stations than you currently have, you streamline voters, other parties will be moaning about administrative irregularities, ballot stuffing, security of the ballot, someone's done something wrong, and there you've got the powder keg, which is simply going to explode. So I think it would be not prudent to actually have the elections go ahead. I'm not afraid that it would be a precedent setting in allowing some future authoritarian to simply invoke this. I don't think that's the case. We, we, are, we are invoking a dictum of necessity, which has very clear, specific regulatory guidelines and dates by which things have to happen. 
Okay, thank you very much, Ibram. I want to I want to move to Su, to Susan, and Susan, you might also like to comment on the elections. Uh, uh, you have made a comment or two in your response, so I would like to hear from you. But there's a particular question that, uh, and I'm going to read the question: um, Can we, the people of South Africa, sue our government for the loss of life, money, and other areas they have been entrusted to protect and uphold? Surely we have the right to sue them in a class action suit for their failure to uphold our constitution and to respect our life. And I just would like you perhaps to respond to, um, first of all, your, in the elections and then, and then on this particular question, uh, which, is a very, which is a very interesting question. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Peterson. Yes, interesting one indeed. Let me just start off with the elections. Yes, I think there is increasingly a tendency that, or to get agreement, we're steering towards broad agreement that the elections could be premature. The Electoral Commission is very well aware that in so many parts of the country, pardon, of the world, elections have been going ahead. And even in pandemic times, there have been successful elections. And they're very well aware that somebody who is in some parties or insistent on having these elections could very well be taking them to court and saying, but it is possible to proceed. But I think the general zeitgeist in our community, in government, also in the Electoral Commission at this stage is that they are put, it's not guaranteed that this third wave will be thoroughly under, will be under control or that a fourth one will not be budding right then when the time comes. Um, late October, as had previously or up to now been agreed. So I think there is a tendency to go towards yes, postpone, and it is it is entirely possible to get that postponement, even just by a simple two-thirds majority in Parliament. They can take that decision. If the ANC agrees, the EFF has is on record. They want a postponement between those two parties. A two-thirds majority is already feasible. So I, I won't be surprised if we see an extension by a current term for these for the current municipalities by about six a few months six months or so that that is that is very feasible and it's especially an interesting point when given the state of disrepair in local government that we're talking about here there is no guarantee at the stage that there is going to be a better more accountable set of local governments that are coming into power. And so why risk health and life for, for elections for a system that is probably not going to deliver anything much better than what mm. we have? It's such an interesting point there about government and constitution and liability and whether um, the government can actually be taken to the constitutional court I think definitely the government, the government should be taken to the constitutional court for failures on so many fronts. I, I think back of earlier days when the constitutional court was still feeling its way around these issues of socioeconomic rights, those that whole set of socioeconomic rights guaranteed in the constitution. We can think back of the Hrudwim case for housing early on mm. and the kind of hope that gave. We can think back of the 1990s, there was such anticipation in South Africa, the trust in the constitution, this constitution is a document that is going to help bring 
the better life for all, which had been promised in that 1994 election campaign. And yet, the, gradually, the trend emerged that government would be held responsible to the extent that it can afford it. As long as these socioeconomic rights are being gradually realized, that is the jurisprudence that arose there. And of course, that's very, very interesting. Government so far has been safe behind this wall of we are progressively realizing these rights and we're doing as much as we can afford. And I think the corruption narrative and evidence of the realities and the extent of the 57 billion year total to, in terms of one calculation at the Zondo Commission, that is a total that at least in terms of those known cases to date have been funneled away from addressing public needs and ended up, ended up in, in party and private pockets. I think a very good argument could be made that, and even made to the constitutional court, that government could have afforded to do more if that much money could have been allowed to disappear under its watch. I believe there's a strong argument to make that they could, uh, could have afforded to do more as had been practiced. And then, yes, as in a sense that the constitutional court has been upholding these judgments on, on what is affordable and in terms of realization of socioeconomic rights. It is the constitutional court that has made some of these judgments. So mm. perhaps somebody should find a way to take the constitutional court to the constitutional court to get a judgment. <laughs> we have reached the highest authority there, but I think there is an opening in terms of how much a government can actually afford. Yeah. So I will come back a little bit later, Susan, to that issue and probably drill it a little bit more closer to, to solutions, hopefully, because uh, it is about accountability. Uh, and how do we how do we actually hold uh, our officials accountable? Um, and it's also related to a question that I'll come back to. And that is uh, in relation to the fact that every year we got these, uh, um, the Auditor General's report uh, indicating how how weak our municipalities are. But 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 what are we actually doing to, 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 to deal with that from a, from a government perspective? But those are some of the questions that I will come back to. But I want to move to Zaki. And, and, and Zaki, uh, um, the question really here is about uh, uh, um, the culture of service delivery. Fakir mentioned about poor attitude to work. Uh, um, and, 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 and for me, it is that culture uh, and I'm not sort of, I'm probably now generalizing a bit, uh, but, but is, 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 is the culture of the, uh, do I want to do my work that I'm supposed to do? And am I committed to see that uh, the quality of, of the municipality that I'm working for, that back to basics is really happening? And, and so I want you to potentially just comment on, on, on the culture of service delivery. And then a second question uh, um, is, is really about active citizens. So, so if you have a government and local government that is not actually doing the basics as, as Fakir have indicated, what is the role of active citizens uh, um, in that? And where does it actually start? You know, that balance between 
government is supposed to deliver, but as an active citizen, I also have a role to play. And how do we bring those two together? So those, if you can just respond to perhaps those two questions, Zaki. Well, for me, uh, in, in some, it all has to do with uh, consequence management. There's absolutely no consequence management when we talk about local government. And I strongly believe that South African citizens have actually sold themselves out. And what do I mean by that? If you look at what is happening at branch level, and I think that's where the problem starts with uh, your very active uh, politicians or citizens or residents, even at local level, where you will find that, but, but this is also partly what has been happening over the years, the whole notion of gatekeeping. And that's why with the elective conferences, whether it's the ANC and all that, uh, as what we've seen recently happening in Limpopo uh, and other uh, uh, areas where branches are now supposed to elect local representatives. It's a whole issue because it's gatekeeping. They know being an, a, 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 a local government representative gives you access to resources. And that's where the problem starts. But also the question is, how is it possible for a branch chairperson to call a meeting without having a call room and yet the people does not, or the residents, uh, members of the party does not do anything about that. And then that goes up to the district, it goes up to the provinces, and it all has to do about the whole notion of absolutely, uh, the whole notion of no consequence management. And I've also over the past year, and I want to uh, just touch on what you've mentioned about uh, the Auditor General's report. I've seen some responses where a municipality will come out and say, but at least this year we have done much better. I'm working for the University of the Free State. If I get an advance of 100 rand and there's a 10 rand which is missing, there will be consequences. And that for me, it is all about the nature of uh, an accountable institution. Uh, and this is not what we have been seeing happening in our local government. And there's other obvious reasons why uh, our leaders have become demigods. They dispense power, they dispense resources. And that's why even now I can tell you the ANC is doing quite a lot in terms of elections. And that's why each time, even now the ANC is in a corner, but the election machinery of the ANC will come to the fore. And why even up until I've been in a very privileged situation where I have been uh, uh, an analyst for the SABC for since 2009, and I've also observed what is happening uh, during election days. What the ANC is doing quite well is that they don't hire up until the last vote has been cast. And this is not what, uh, uh, the, uh, what the other parties are doing. They will campaign, but at the end of the day, they will just leave that, especially a day before that. But coming back to your second question, uh, Prof, about active uh, citizen. The danger is if you look at what is happening at local municipalities, expanded public works and all that, your municipality in most areas, in these rural areas is actually the employer. But now how are you going to speak out against your local uh, councillor if you know there will be consequences? Uh, 
How are you going to even begin to raise your voice? And it is where the problem is. And I've also made a contribution about uh, the whole notion of our collective inactive vision. Uh, because sometimes we fear the consequences. And by saying this, I don't say, uh, you know, South Africans now need to become disrespectful. Uh, but our constitution has certain uh, guarantees us uh, certain rights. And I strongly believe that this is what should happen. Communities should take a stance against poor performance, lack of service delivery. We have seen re recently, and as I've indicated, I have been a, uh, uh, in a, uh, a privilege of having been involved in more than 50 or 40 uh, case studies across South Africa. And in each and every one of these case studies, there is credible evidence that the communities try to engage with the local government. But at a certain level, I strongly believe that intimidation also comes uh, to the fore. And that's why that has a huge impact on how communities are responding to the whole issue of uh, activism or having a vibrant activist uh, 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 group at, at local government level. Okay, thank you very much, Zaki. Susana, I want to come back to you um, and just probe uh, uh, the, um, the accountability argument a little bit further. Um, is, there, is the way in which local government functions uh, um, a challenge uh, uh, in terms of uh, what they can do and how they can be held accountable. You know, uh, um, is it, uh, Fakir mentioned earlier about administrative functions, uh, uh, extractive functions, strong regulatory uh, um, uh, uh, configurations. Is, is there a way in which it's politically put together? Uh, forget about the, 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 uh, um, the skills for now, because I will get to the skills a little bit later. But, but how, do we, how do we crack this nut? Effectively, because we 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 we're going around the circles, uh, not in this debate, but uh, indicating that these are things that's not happening, and we know what are the challenges. But but is there a way? Is there a a a a, a silver bullet that we could that we could utilize to say, well, how do we actually fix that? Or, or are all of this just politically uh, a a political a political challenge? Oh, indeed, one can look at this from bottom up and from the view of the councillors and administrators, etc. And so it was from bottom up. Voters have certainly tried some respects to the extent that they do alter their votes and to the extent that they do look at local government level for exact accountability, where they do believe that voting for a different party or maybe a candidate in that particular system could help make a difference. We have seen that the overall voting patterns have been maintained and we know local government elections are not so much an, a mechanism through which accountability can be extracted. So small party changes here and there, but but the overall picture of national and provincial voting trends still prevails. And then we, we can look at what else do voters or citizens bottom up attempt. And we know, yes, they do protest and they tend to combine. And I've written much about it in my, in my own work, 
they tend to combine this with voting for, for example, for the ANC, while protesting against that party. And using this as part of the representational mechanism, it is transactional at that level, not just with individual later leaders and leaders of protests, but also with communities as such. And so, so this direct engagement and they often stay away, do not vote rather than vote for another party. And that, is, that also means that they put their money for representation and expression responsibility on these mechanisms of direct engagement. The smoke that beckons is the one, uh, one of the famous expressions that I use. People use that to say, if they burn things, their representatives will come. At, at the political level itself, I think there is a great, quote unquote, conspiracy of unaccountability, where political balances in councils are often so fine that it is a party is regarded as dangerous to be too strict on their own representatives in a very competitive inter-party environment. That could also mean that they concede there's been wrongdoing, wrongdoing in own ranks and they rather try to smooth it over and the, then, then take direct accountability for that and responsibility for that. We also know, and I see one of the questions that popped up exactly on this type of question about policy making and decision making in coalition governments. And as we talk about in this MISPRA book, there is so much bartering of decisions, of policies that take place in coalition governments. And in some coalition governments, political parties have actually been able to extract policies that are directly relevant and beneficial to particular communities in this negotiating game that comes, becomes coalition decision-making. But that has not always been to the benefit financially, for example, financial prudity, etc. in the bigger scheme of council decision-making, since we're talking about local government. So it is, there is so many, are so many other factors besides the direct community interest, besides direct need, developmental needs that come into decision-making the, the level of rationality in it sometimes only boils down to rationality as to what works for a particular political party. Hmm. So, Susan, do, do you think that the, the sort of the new district model will assist there? Um, it's, you know, yes and no. It could bring more accountability in a sense of responsibility probably for public funds and what disappears gets funneled away into private pockets, et cetera. So that could, accountability in that sense, yes, but not accountability in the sense that there is a link, direct link into the electorate. But then we know that that link is often so dysfunctional that should any, should the constitutionality of a district development model be challenged legally, it could very well be argued, but that link had not existed in the first place. Yeah, so yeah. in some ways it could, you know, but then we're asking for provincial and national government, which we know are standing accused of corruption 
and malfeasance in governance in many respects. We're asking them to come in and take responsibility. It's the same way that we have seen accountability and responsibility have not improved when we've had section 139 provincial takeovers placing under administration of select municipalities. There've been quite a number of those. In most of those cases, it does not help build further accountability and responsibility. So one should be very careful to assume that national and provincial level interventions will be the magic bullets. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Susan. Ibram, I want to come to you. Um, and I think we're uh, moving closer to the end of our, our webinar, but I, I, I want you to probably put, to op also comment from your perspective on the lack of accountability and oversight. But I, I want to pull it through because uh, we are a university and, and I think there's, there's a lot of public universities, there's science councils, um, there's other uh, technical private colleges and so on. Uh, there's SALGA uh, that, that also assists from a government perspective. Um, what, what role can higher education, for instance, play to be able to say, well, you know, are there, are there interventions besides skills development? Are there other things that we could do to be able to contribute to the solution? Absolutely, um, Prof, I think there are. And, you know, in so far as, well, for let, let me just go back a little. I, I know you're a scientist, so, so you, you, we would come down on the side of, of, of hard sciences, but this is a lesson for why our humanities and social sciences should not be so cavalierly disregarded uh, as they have been. <laughs> so we, we, we really need to strongly focus much more. And I'm not talking about the fancy continental philosophy type stuff, you know, where people are forced to read Derrida and Foucault, and sometimes you can't make sense of what the stuff is going on. But the whole a old idea of a classic university which promotes and provides a space for reflection and humane scholars, irrespective of your persuasion, for how you think. Because if you really think about it, yes, we've got problems of capacity and, 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 and you know, uh, high-level engineering and other kind of skills, fine. We, you know, but we can plug that, right? Universities can produce those, but they also need to be producing critically literate citizens, firstly, and secondly, more humane, ethical people who go into these positions. Because if you are ethical and you are in a symbiotic relationship with the politician who wants you to do bad things, perhaps you might be persuaded by the type of education you might receive to stop doing that kind of thing. Let, let me put it to you this way and to our audience. You know, the fellows at Prasa and the fellows at Transnet and at, at SARS, uh, so I'll, I'll mention names here, not to single out people, but to say people like Siabonga Gama, for example, or Mr. Brian Mulefi, these are not uneducated people. They are highly, highly skilled. Uh, Brian Mulefi is a chartered accountant. Um, Siabonga Gama is an expert in finance. I mean, he worked in the US at some of the big finance houses. These people aren't, these people aren't, you know, they aren't me. These people are highly skilled. They are highly and, and well-trained. 
but they were they were easily manipulated and then they became part of doing the manipulating. So there was something missing there in the way in which they were educated, technically very well educated, but not educated in the humane approach to how societies and how people with power and responsibility in society should function. So that's the first thing. The second thing, Prof, is events of this nature. Uh, you know, uh, engaging in public discourse, having your people write in, 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 in popular press rather than merely academic journals has to, has to change. So the incentive structure for how things are managed in universities, for example, you only get credit if you are in peer-reviewed journals rather than, you know, you could rework the system of rewarding people like Prof. Um, Matebesi and Prof. Susan Poison used to be fairly prolific, even in the popular media. So, you know, of course, they don't carry the same weight as a journal article, but there should be some credit for that kind of work, for public intervention work uh, and being part of public discourse. So events like this, publishing in the popular press, appearing in the media, not that you get overtaken by from doing your core academic work, but to do it because, you know, there's many academics who are very suspicious of being in the popular media. And I think it's a it's 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 not a it's not a clever suspicion. Uh, mm. So they need to get away from that. You know, it's, it's, it's important to be out there to promote that humane idea of what universities generally try to do. So I think we need to move away slightly also from the technicist approach to universities, to the old classical idea of what a university should do and what role it plays in society. I yeah. just, Prof, if I may take the liberty of just quickly answering two questions which I saw um, posed to me in the chat. The one was can the Auditor General actually do something more concrete to promote a level of accountability? Yes, they can. They can actually now lay criminal charges if there's a real evidence of... So you look at the new Public Audit Act, which, funny enough, came into force in April last year in the lockdown, which probably why people aren't aware of it. But that act now makes provision. And the previous late Auditor General worked very hard on ensuring that this happens, uh, Kimi Makwetu. Uh, and so it, it is available. Another question that was asked was, you know, is the new routine of choosing councillors, especially in the governing party, will that perhaps change things? No, it won't. Because under Mbeki, under and all through Zuma's administration, come every election, a new routine is, due, is, is, is used. So remember in 2016 on the streets of Pretoria, what happened? There was accusations in the ANC that a mayoral candidate was being imposed. Then they said, okay, no, let's not have this imposed by the top structures of the party. Let the branches decide who must be the candidate. Well, when the branches decide, they go to branch meetings with knives, knobkiris, and guns. So what do you do? Then a higher order uh, organ of the party decides, no, no, we can't let people do this. We've got to intervene. If you do that, then you're accused of being, of being, uh, of, 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 placing candidates top down, using a top down approach. So you don't win either way. So we got to take a long, hard look at our political culture as ourselves. Prof. Matabes is talking about the way in which we valorize politicians. We do that too easily. I mean, in the midst of a pandemic, a politician was able to get people together without their own regard for their own safety and health. So people have to be much more serious about themselves and not so e be so easily led uh, by 
populist politicians who use popular issues, legitimately popular issues, and use them in debilitating, uncritical, unmediated ways. So, you know, there's no escape out of this. Systemically, you can make as many interventions as you like. If you don't address the issues of political culture, the system interventions eventually won't work because the system exists inside of dialectical relationship with political culture. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Zaki, I'm going to get to you if you just in one minute or so um, could respond to the question is uh, um, uh, the trust between citizens and local government. Um, now, obviously, if you if you take various provinces, you probably would say that that trust is totally eroded. Um, uh, if, if you have to if you have to suggest an intervention to rebuild that trust, uh, uh, what would that be? Are you muted, uh, uh, Zaki? Uh, it's, 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 it's very important to take note that uh, the whole issue of trust, uh, it obviously takes place over time. Uh, there's absolutely no way where communities will just wake up and decide to go and burn down facilities or go to the street. So trust, uh, whether you build it or whether it gets eroded, that takes, it's a process. Now, one way of municipalities and how they can actually build trust, and it's a simple way. Uh, Fakir spoke about back to basics. And it all happened as a confusion between promises and promises that have not been made. And, and, and I, that's why I say it's actually very simple. When promises have been made, whether it is in the integrated development plan and they can't be met, then I strongly believe that local uh, representatives or local councillors or the local council should go back to the community. I've never known that I'm a member in good standing of a certain political party in my hometown, but it's election time. And suddenly I'm getting all these SMSs to say, <laughs> can't you come on board? And that is the nature of our politics. I strongly believe that uh, we, yes, people can say, people who go to the street, it's very easy for us to say uh, they are naive and very disruptive, violent and all that. But at the end of the day, if you are exposed to sewage spilling out in your home, and this is what is happening in other areas, that actually is a recipe uh, to break trust. And at the end of the day, that's why we will see this vicious cycle of service delivery protests in South Africa, something that we don't condone, the violence that goes with that. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much, Zaki. Um, I would like to say thank you very much to, to Zaki, to Ibrahim and Susan uh, for, a, for a very insightful discussion. Um, you know, the challenges related to local government will persist. Uh, and we know at least one of uh, some of the issues or the issues that need to be addressed. Uh, and we know the activism that should come from our, our citizens. Uh, and, uh, we have got certain views of whether the uh, uh, local government elections should carry on uh, in October or not. Uh, um, but ultimately, it is about uh, the culture of service. Uh, it is about the trust that need to be developed between the citizens and, and, and local government. It is about the fact that uh, it's not only about 
the technical competency. It is also about the ethical and the value system that goes with it. And it is also about uh, to what extent uh, our national government uh, uh, play a more critical part uh, to be able to, to ensure that that local government start to function the way that, uh, that it needs to function. And that accountability at the different levels are brought in uh, uh, as appropriate as possible. Um, the role of universities uh, in this should never be underestimated. Beside the technical skills is also up, open up a platform such as this to debate and discuss that, to offer potential solutions to uh, the politicians and, and, and others, but also to bring across that ethical, critical analysis and ethical components of uh, over to our graduates that obviously will become the leaders of tomorrow. Again, Susan, Ibrahim, uh, uh, Zaki, thank you very much for your input, uh, uh, your contributions for the technical team led by Lasha and our ICT uh, people. Thank you very much. And to you, the audience, thank you very much for your participated, uh, I, participation. I haven't gone through all the questions. I've start, tried to group some of those, uh, but thank you very much. And, um, and uh, we're looking forward to invite you to welcome you again to our next Thought Leadership series. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you.